Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was originally given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, as a part of the Gospel of Matthew series. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do, in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret." then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Father, um, you're in the secret place and you're here tonight with hundreds of people in a room. And we just pray over the next 40 minutes or so for an overlap of heaven and earth. An overlap of what I have to say, but far more than that, what you, Father, have to say through Matthew chapter six, verse one to four, through Jesus, and even more than that, through the spirit in every mind and imagination and life. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Thank you. A while back, I went out to lunch with a group of friends uh, to celebrate a birthday or something, and we had a great time, and near the end of the meal, I kind of snuck out the back to go to the bathroom, but actually I went and I paid for the meal because I'm awesome like that. (laughs) And I go back to the table and I sit down and I'm just waiting for that great moment, you know, when the server comes and says, Mr. Comer, and they always call you by your dad's name uh, when you pay for something. Uh, Mr. Comer just paid for the meal, it's all covered, and then there's this collective, oh, no way, John Mark, you're amazing, really growing up now, and wow, you pay for the, like, it's just that moment. So I'm looking forward to that, as you, you know, as you do. And some of you don't know, because you're not as awesome, um, but trust me, it's great. So I'm sitting there, and after five or 10 minutes, uh, the server comes out and just says, somebody paid for the meal. Doesn't even make eye contact with me. No wink or nod at Mr. Comer. I don't get anything. <laughs> and, and then there's this, this quick moment, and it's about two seconds long, where all of my friends kind of look around the restaurant right past my smiling face. <laughs> like, do we know anybody here? And then, it's, and then there was this like, quick like, shrug, like, no, oh, cool. And then everybody just got up and left. And I'm sitting there, and my, honestly, my first thought was, well, that was a waste of money. <laughs> like, what was all of that for? And in that moment, I was robbed of the joy that could have been mine if only my heart posture or motivation was coming from a very different place. Now, that is what Jesus is dealing with in this next teaching. And I'm guessing that I'm not the only one who has this bent to do a good thing once in a while for an ulterior motivation. I'm guessing there's two or three other people in the room tonight. So just for a few of us tonight, let's work through what Jesus has to say line by line. Chapter six, verse one. Be careful 
Okay, so right off the bat, this is a warning kind of teaching, like a sit up, pay attention. Be careful, careful of what? Not to practice your righteousness in front of others. Now, the word that we translate righteousness in English is dikaiosune in Greek. Can you say that? Right, and actually there's a ton of debate and controversy in the academic world. A lot of ink is spilt over this word and how to translate it, but most scholars agree, at least here, that it has to do, righteousness has to do with right relationships. So when I read that word righteousness, I think in my mind's eye, right relationships with God, first and foremost, but that's not the, that's one dimension out of at least two or three. Also, right relationships with other people, your spouse if you have one, or your roommate, or circle of friends, or family of origin, your mom, your dad, your church. Um, But that's just another. Then also right relationships with the needy in the language of Jesus, those on the margins of society. In fact, um, for that reason, a number of scholars translate it good works. Be careful not to practice all of your good works in front of others to be seen by them. And then look at the second line, if you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Okay, what is Jesus saying here? Well, first, let's start with what he's not saying. First, he's not saying, don't do good works. Notice a line later, it's when you give to the needy, not if, we'll get there in a minute. Jesus just assumes that his apprentices will go out and do good works. And for Jesus, good works are exactly that, good, hence the name. And I say that because a lot of you did not grow up in the church, but some of you did. And if, like me, you grew up in a church tradition, there's this vein, and it's not a small one, it's a large one, in the Western church, kind of Western post-Reformation church, if you know your church history, that is a bit of an overreaction to 16th century Catholicism, where somewhere along the way, good works became a bad thing. Anybody know what I'm talking about? where the only time you hear people talk about good works in church, it's like a pejorative, like a dirty word, like, oh, be careful of good works. Like, you know, little problem with that. The main one is that, like, they're called good works, not bad works. So Jesus doesn't say, watch out for bad works. Like, it's no good works, and actually, Jesus commands you to do good works. So does Paul, so do a number of the other New Testament writers. James makes the point that if you don't, like, the odds are something is, like, seriously off-kilter in your faith. Jesus just assumes, well, of course, if you follow me, then just the natural byproduct out of your apprenticeship is going to be some kind of good work. So just to clarify for a few of us that grew up in a church tradition like that, he's not saying, hey, careful, don't do good works. Secondly, he's not saying if you do good works, hide them. A lot of people read, you know, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others and then put a period, stop right there, and cut out the end of that sentence, which is what? In order to be seen by them. Now, if Jesus here is saying, hey, if you do good works, make sure you hide it, like sweep it under the rug, don't say anything about it, then by that logic, that's true not only of giving to the needy, which we're about to cover, it's also true, say, of prayer, which would make it like not okay to pray out loud at church or like prayer meetings then, or by that logic are all off you know, limits. Remember, this is just one part of a much larger sermon, so we like break it up week by week, but imagine you're hearing this all in one sitting. Rewind one page, just a few minutes back, and remember what Jesus said, quote, let your light, what? Shine, you know, it's a famous line, before others that they may see your what? 
Good works. Again, Jesus just assumes all of this. And glorify your Father in heaven. Now, the key line there is glorify your Father, not glorify you. That's the litmus test. So if you're like thinking, do I tell people about this like cool Jesus-y thing I'm doing? Do I post it on Instagram, which is what it really comes down to, or not? Like, or, or not, like, how, how do I know public or private? Tell people or keep it a secret. The litmus test is, does this glorify God? In fact, there are times when what you're doing, it is fitting to broadcast it to the world because it, that's what, exactly what it does. Glory to God, to the Father, and, and a motivation for other people to join in that. It's not wrong for Bethany to tell a cool story about how your money went to a septic system in Nicaragua. It's beautiful because I'm moved in that moment to like, wow, the Father is amazing, and to more generosity and justice in my own life. The litmus test is, does it glorify God or does it glorify me? Do people like walk away and think, oh wow, that guy is really amazing, or that girl is really amazing. So Jesus is not saying, hide all of your good works. So what is he saying? He's saying, when you do good works, don't do them to show off or to look good in front of other people for the three of us that struggle with that once in a while. The key line there is to be seen by them can also be translated in order to be noticed by them. In Greek, it's theathenai, which is where we get the word theater. More literally, it's to put on a show for them or even to put on a theater for them. So Jesus is dealing here with our motivation. And I need to say this, Jesus is interested in behavior. So I hear people say on a regular basis, you know, the gospel isn't about behavior modification. And with all due respect, I just, I think to myself, what, what gospel are you reading? What, like, do you have another translation of the Bible I'm not aware of? Like, Matthew, do you have another New Testament? Unless if I'm missing something, Jesus really cares about my behavior, and he wants to modify it, like, a lot. In fact, I think he wants to radically change it and reteach me a whole new way to be human. Jesus just finished, if you've been tracking through the sermon, um, six examples of his way of life, and every single one is about behavior and how to modify it. But that said, for Jesus, right behavior isn't enough. We need the right heart posture or motivation behind it. In all forms of religion or spirituality, and even in the way of Jesus, there is a temptation that we all face to do the right things for all sorts of kind of ulterior motivations, goofy, weird, narcissistic reasons. For example, I'm, I hate to use myself as an example, but uh, I'm up here teaching the way of Jesus. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's a great thing. Um, But you have no idea why I'm up here. You don't know my motivation. You can't see that. You can guess at it, depending on how cynical you are. You can like hint at it based on a comment here or a comment there, or if you know me, like, but you don't actually have insight past my epidermis into my heart posture and my motivation. I could be up here because I love Jesus like nobody's business, and I want to serve Jesus with my life, and I feel like this is what I was made to do, and I love you a ton, and I want to serve you, and I feel like this is the role I play in our community. I could be up here for that reason, in theory. (laughs) Or I could be up here because like, this is my job and I have like a father and I have little children and rent is really expensive if you live in the city. And like, I just, there was nobody else to teach this weekend and I really wanted the weekend off, but here I am. (laughs) 
Or worse, I could be up here because I, I honestly, I'm up here because I want more followers on Instagram, because I want to sell more books so that I can make more money, so that I can have more power and authority to dominate and impose my will and like da 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 da. Some of you are like, I was already cynical and now I know it. I know it. <laughs> right? Now, I'm not saying this is all a hypothetical scenario, okay? Um, but my point is, like, if that's shocking to you, it's not like my motivations are 100% pure. The, the reality is I'm a mixed bag. I'm up here for some really good reasons, and in all honesty, I'm up here for some not-so-great reasons. And don't judge me. How many of you, like, go to work at your cubicle tomorrow morning, and you, wake, you get there at 7.30, and the only thought is in your mind is, I am here to contribute to human flourishing? <laughs> Like, that's it. Like, so, so, come on, let's be honest. You, there are moments when you're like, human flourishing, and the other moments they're like, freaking email, why am I here working for the man, right? So the question that you have to ask yourself on a regular basis that I have to ask myself in particular, it's like an occupational hazard with my job because this stage is crazy dangerous. But we all have to ask ourselves, why am I doing this good thing? Whether it's teaching the way of Jesus or serving on the hospitality team or loving your two-year-old or what, anything good. Why, what is my motivation? And that's what Jesus is dealing with here in chapter six. Now, chapter six, verse one that we just covered is essentially a thesis statement for the next section of the Sermon on the Mount, from verse one all the way down to verse 18. That's our next little section. And next, Jesus in it lays out three practices, one, giving to the needy, two, prayer, and three, fasting. We'll take them one week at a time. Every time and place has its core practices, or if you prefer the language, spiritual disciplines. For us in America, it's a Bible reading, prayer, and going to church. That's great, I believe in all of that. But if you think about it, in Jesus' day, first off, there was no Bible to read at home. The codex was, you know, 1500, the Gutenberg release was 1500 years away, 15, yeah, years away. And so you either put the Bible to memory at a young age, if you were smart enough, or you just were at synagogue a lot and you grew up hearing it read out loud over you, but not like in the morning with your Chemex coffee and like, you know, your Allen Bible handmade in Scott. Like you don't have any of that. We're way before that. And then as far as going to church or, or they would have called it synagogue, you're living in a village, there's a few hundred people there. Synagogue is the epicenter of life. It's your local elementary school. It's the community center. It's the worship center. It's the justice center. It's kind of the house of government. It's the welfare system. You're there pretty much every single day or all through the week. All of the, It goes without saying. So um, the three core practices that you read about in a lot, not only right here from Jesus, but in a lot of rabbinic literature from around the time of Jesus are exactly that, giving to the needy, prayer, and fasting. Those were kind of the three core or most important practices of Jesus' world, giving to the needy, prayer, fasting. Now, Jesus is not giving an in-depth teaching on each practice, so I won't do that either over the next few weeks. Rather, if you think about it, he is warning his apprentices about the danger of religious hypocrisy, the danger of getting sucked into doing these core practices, which are all great, and Jesus is all for them, but getting sucked into doing them in order to look good in front of other people. And we need to listen carefully to Jesus' teachings over the next few weeks. Our entire church is built around this idea of practicing the way of Jesus together in Portland. We have a high value for practice, but it would be really easy over the next year or two to get off track. So over the next few weeks, we'll take on each of the three practices 
purposes. For tonight, first up on the docket is giving to the needy. Take a look at two. Jesus goes on. So when you give to the needy, now that phrase, give to the needy, is one word in Greek, um, elemosuen, and it's very slippery to translate into English. Back in the day, it was translated almsgiving, if like you like ever had a King James Bible or something like that. I actually think that does a much, much better job because it's not just giving money, which is kind of how we read that in our day and age. It is that, it, it's you know tithing to Bridgetown Church and 10% of that goes to hear the cry, it's that. But it's also serving at foster parent night out once a month, which 70 or 80 of you do on a regular basis, or welcoming a refugee family into your home with Refugee Care Collective, or a foster child into your family. It's not just giving your money, it is that, but it's also giving your time, giving out of relationship, giving your life itself. It's closer to what we call social justice. And social justice was central to Hebrew spirituality. Read the Old Testament. It's practically on every single page. You can't read the Old Testament or the Bible of Jesus' day without getting sucked into the gravitational field of God's heart for the poor. It was so central to Hebrew spirituality. And in Hebrew, the exact same word, sadaka, was used for both righteousness and almsgiving. To be righteous was to give to the needy, and to give to the needy was to be righteous. Right in AD 70, after the destruction of the temple, if you know your Jewish history at all, um, uh, Roman general Titus leveled the temple, leveled the city. It was the end of Israel as we know it. And, and if you've ever, like, um, Judaism had to essentially reinvent itself because they had no more temple, no more priesthood, and no more sacrificial system. So read the Torah, read the first five books of the Bible, and imagine trying to go out and do that with no temple, no priesthood, and no sacrificial system. Like It's like most of what the Torah is about. So Judaism had to reinvent itself. What we have today is very different than what we had in Jesus' day. In that kind of revamp, giving to the needy actually replaced the sacrificial system as a way to make atonement. So post-sin, instead of like going to the temple with your goat to make atonement before God, instead of there was no more temple, there was no more priesthood, there was no more sacrificial system. You were now living in Greece or whatever, and you were a minority in a ghetto neighborhood or whatever. Instead, you would go out and give to the needy. You'd go take a meal or you'd take money or you'd start a nonprofit or you'd volunteer an hour or two or whatever in order to atone for your sin. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying it played a key role in society. One historian writes this. By the first century, there was a well-organized system of relief for the poor based in the synagogues, providing something of what our modern state-sponsored welfare systems aim to offer. So think about Medicare and welfare and food stamps and all the government programs that we have. Imagine none of, like that is non-existent at a government level in Jesus' world, all of that was run through the local synagogue, and all of it was based on generosity of people that actually had money in the local synagogue. The funding of this system depended on contribution from members of the community, which could reach such an extent that there were rabbinic regulations to prevent a man from impoverishing himself and his family by giving away more than 20% of his income. So Jesus, my point is, Jesus is tapping into not only a high value in his society, but a high value in the heart of the Father. And Jesus is all for it. He is all for giving to the needy. That's not really what this teaching is actually about. What this teaching is actually about is our motive. He just assumes, of course, you're giving to the needy. What he's dealing with here is our motivation. And Jesus has a negative or a wrong motivation and a positive or a right motivation. Let's take them each in turn. First off, the negative. He goes on, do not 
when you give to the needy, do not, here's the negative, announce it with trumpets. So as far as we know, people did not actually, you know, play a trumpet before they gave money. Um, but there's a clever little play on words. So this is two millennia before push pay and an app on your phone where you just like kind of reach down and give or this automatic withdrawal out of your checking account or whatever. We're way before that. There was a, a giving box in each synagogue that was actually made out of a ram's horn. So it's very similar to a shofar, which was also used as a trumpet. And when you would walk in, you would take your coin, your denarius or whatever, kind of made out of metal or copper, and you would throw it in the ram's horn, and it made a loud noise, like a kind of clang and clatter. And so you'd like walk in and kind of announce yourself with like, how was there like one cling, cling, cling? Or was it like, you know? And everybody would kind of look, and we laugh at this, but like Jesus actually has more than one teaching on this reality. So it's a clever little play on words. And he's saying, listen, when you walk into the synagogue on, you know, Sabbath morning or whatever, and you give to the needy, that's great, but don't announce it to the world. You don't have to like throw it like basketball style from 10 feet away, you know, and like one at a time, ding, 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 ding. Oh, here's another ding, ding. You don't, like you don't need to announce it to the world. He goes on, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and even on the streets to be honored by others. Now, this is the first time that Jesus uses a word that later becomes a Jesus-ism. In Greek, it's hypocrites, or in English, hypocrites. And it's used by Jesus 17 times, usually for, think about this, the religious leaders of his day or the Pharisees and the teachers of the Torah. Now in Jesus' day, it wasn't a pejorative like it is today. It did not mean like a, a deceiver. All it meant was an actor on a stage. This it was very similar to our word actor. And this was an image that all Jesus' listeners would immediately connect with. Just down the road, a few miles from Jesus' hometown, was the Roman city of Sephoris, where a gigantic theater was built just a few years earlier. In fact, the Gospels say that Jesus was um, tecton, is the word in Greek. Usually, uh, we hear it's carpenter, um, and we imagine Jesus like with a lathe and like sawdust and a table. That's, that's a beautiful picture. Um, he lives in the Galilee. There's no forest for like 100 miles. Basically, nothing is made out of wood, even to this day. Everything is made out of black basalt rock. The, pretty much the only thing in a home that was made out of wood was the front door, if you had enough money for one, and maybe a table or two to put a lamp on. Everything was basically made out of rock. That word tecton doesn't necessarily mean carpenter. It can mean that, but it really just means construction worker or even stonemason. So it's far more likely that, Je like don't imagine Jesus like with the lathe and the table. I'm sorry to just burst your bubble right there. But um, it's like, but my boss is a Jewish carpenter. Actually, he's a stonemason. So just as far, when I get this, I imagine Jesus is like a burly construction worker out with like a big piece slab of rock or whatever, something like that. And a lot of, I say that because a lot of scholars speculate that just based on when Jesus was born, that he, and his father grew up working as stonemasons or construction workers on the city of Sephoris, which was being built during Jesus' childhood and young adulthood, and in particular on this theater. There's a picture, not a great picture because I took it, sorry for that, but that's it right there. That was just a few miles from where Jesus grew up. And there were theaters all over Israel, and so this, I, this imagery of an actor on a stage, um, as in the first century, as in the 21st, was well known. Now, here's my point. Jesus is just saying, hey, the religious leaders are, are hypocrites. They're actors. They are not the real deal. 
And he is exposing religious hypocrisy for the sham it actually is. In fact, a number of kind of language experts think that this idea of a hypocrite as like a pejorative, a negative idea, a deceiver, actually entered Western usage through Jesus' teaching right here. He was the first one to call out religious hypocrisy. Think about that. First one to call out religious hypocrisy was not, you know, Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris or a critic. It was Jesus himself. So this really, religious hypocrisy really bothers the world, really bothers most of us in the room. And guess what? It really bothers Jesus too because it's a death blow to the witness of the church. But here's what's fascinating. Back to the text. Jesus, that's not the problem that Jesus seems to have with it here. So he does not say, hey, don't announce, you know, don't show off, don't be a hypocrite, because that will just turn people off to me and my message. Now, he might think that. My guess is he would nod his head, but that's not his issue here. His issue here is, truly, I tell you, look at the end of three, they have received their reward in full. Jesus is saying, if you give to the needy, or in our language, you know, do social justice or whatever, but you're just doing it for the approval or because of the disapproval of other people, uh, fine, you'll, you'll get what you want. Pat on the back, a little clap, comment on your Instagram page, you're amazing, thank you, whatever. But that's all you'll get. Notice, we'll talk more about this in a few minutes, Jesus isn't down on doing good works for a reward. He just thinks that if the reward you're after is applause or accolades from your peers, you are setting your sights way too low. Like there's so much more that the Father has for you. Now, on to the positive. That's the next line. Three, but when you give to the needy, here's the right motivation. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. How exactly do we do that? Isn't that kind of like saying, don't think about the purple kangaroo? Whatever you do right now, just don't think about the purple kangaroo. What are you all thinking about right now? You're like, how boring and stupid this talk is. Um, No, you're all thinking about a purple kangaroo, right? So isn't that kind of what it's like here? You know, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. How, How is that even possible? Well, remember, Jesus is talking less about behavior here and more about heart motivation. He's saying, think about it, as we follow Jesus over a lifetime, the end goal is to grow and mature into the kind of people who naturally do Jesus-y things without even thinking about it, much less thinking much of it. Again, it's Willard for the win on this one. Quote, the kind of people who have been so transformed by their daily walk with God that good deeds naturally flow from their character are precisely the kind of people whose left hand would not notice what their right hand is doing. As, for example, when driving one's own car or speaking one's native language, what they do, they do naturally, often automatically, simply because of what they are pervasively and internally. These are people who do not have to invest a lot of reflection in doing good for others. Their deeds are in secret no matter who is watching, for they are absorbed in love of God and of those around them. They hardly notice their own deed and rarely remember it. I think of my own wife down here, not to embarrass you, love, but any of you know my wife, T, she's 
so loving and it comes out of like a real deep authentic place in her life and if you're with her um, you know there's eye contact you are the most important person in her universe and there's attention and there's affection and most of the time you walk away feeling a lot of love if you compliment her on that the odds are she'll just look at you a little bit like well of course isn't everybody else like that no everybody else is not I'm not like that at all um, but that, it's so naturally out of who she is. And we all know people like that. Usually they are older and wiser, more mature in the way of Jesus. You ever, like people, you compliment on something, oh, it's amazing the way you do this, or the amazing the way you do that, and they look at you a little confused, like, oh, I never really thought about that. Yeah, that is amazing, I guess, but I hadn't really thought about it. And, and, or, they're, or they're embarrassed. They're just, it's not like, oh, you know, I was waiting for somebody to notice You know, it's about time. I've been slaving away here week after week, and finally you start to notice I'm the only one ever cleaning up after Bridgetown Community. It's like, no, there's just this, oh, cool, or or they're bashful, or like there's a beautiful, Bonhoeffer called it a self-forgetfulness. And it doesn't mean I don't think that we don't take joy in good works, because I think that's right and fitting to do Jesus-y things and get a whole lot of joy and even meaning and purpose and satisfaction out of it. I don't think that's what he's saying here. I just think he's saying that our long-term goal is to become the kind of people who, who follow Jesus and are transformed and just naturally do good works, naturally do Jesus things, and it comes not out of like a schedule or every third, that's great, I'm not down on that at all. It just comes out of who you have become through following Jesus, and honestly, you don't even think about it or think that much about it. It's just a part of the warp and woof of your life. Now, when you get there, and all of you can get there, if not by tomorrow morning at 10, um, then over a lifetime of following Jesus, all of you can get there. Then, listen, then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, he sees what nobody else sees, what never makes it onto Facebook or onto a stage, what never has like a, well, thank you for you or your name on the back of a pew or whatever. He sees all of it. He sees all of your life. There's nothing that is a secret to the Father. Your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, this is the most fascinating part of the teaching for me. Jesus is saying the right motivation for giving to the needy or I think for any good work is to get a reward from your Father in heaven. Now, just think about that. Does, that sounds a little self-serving, right? Western culture has a high value for altruism. So I think of, uh, I started thinking this last week about Immanuel Kant, if you read any philosophy. His whole thing was do the right thing because it's the right thing. That's all you should need. No pat on the back, no whatever, just it's the right thing to do. And that's fine. That's a, a high Western value, and I have no problem with it at all. But Jesus is a bit more realistic about the human condition, and he has, I think, an even greater insight into the, our engine of motivation. And notice he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, give to the needy because it's the right thing to do. He doesn't even say, give to the needy because that's what God is like, and you need to be like God, like he said with love your enemies. He just says, give to the needy And if you do, your father will see it, even if nobody else does. And guess what? He'll reward you. Doesn't say what the reward is, so don't, be careful not to fill in the blank with like, oh yeah, the new Tesla, great, here's a check, Jesus. (laughs) Like dot, dot, dot. 
to the needy memo line down payment on a Tesla or whatever. No, he doesn't say what the reward is. He just says, like, just do it. But he doesn't say for altruism because it's the right. He says, no, like, do it for the reward of the Father. That's, that's the right. The Father will notice you. Even if it's in secret, he'll see it. He'll notice and he'll reward you. Now, you know, I've been thinking about this for a few days now, and we are born with a desire to be noticed. I have young children, and so it's fresh in my mind right now. But we come out of the womb crying for attention, literally. And when kids grow up, or as kids grow up, they regularly say to their parents, to their dads in particular, but also to mom, aunt, uncle, grandma, grandpa, random stranger on the street, this one little line, if you're a parent, you know it well, watch me, daddy. You recognize that? Watch me, mommy. Watch me, creepy stranger on the side of the road by the van with no window in it. That's from personal experience. Watch me do a cartwheel. Watch me do a cannonball into the pool. It's like you can't do a cannonball without a crowd right there. Watch me ride my bike. It's like the pinnacle of human accomplishment right here, you know? Watch me play the piano. Kids need attention and approval. Uh, a few days ago, uh, my son Moses, who is eight years old, he's downstairs. So over the summer, we had our kids take this little uh, class at the Apple Store on iMovie because they want to, you know, like little budding filmmakers and they want to make movies or whatever. So they go and they've been playing around with, you know, stop motion and with iMovie all summer long. And a few days ago, they found out about this app that does like special effects with that like, you know, it's, it's really easy and it just lays over the top of a movie you make or a picture you take. Um, all this cool stuff. And they got me to buy, they're like, Dad, can we please have money? I said, no. They said, Dad, it's for a Star Wars-like app. And I said, of course, here you go. That's for a good cause. And so they got this thing where like, they take a little video, and then it's actually, it looks amazing. It looks like better than most TV shows actually now. And like there's TIE fighters come and like crash right in the middle of the road, or an AT walker will like crash or whatever, or explosions. And, and then they go off, and, and all day long, they're just out like outside and up and down the street making this little movie or whatever. And I get home and Moses is like hyperventilating with joy. Like he can't like get the language out fast. And he's, dad, you, and he just has to show me everything. Like every, look at this. And it's the Millennium Falcon over Chapman Elementary. And look at this. And then he had this whole like series of my poor, beautiful little eight-year-old daughter Sunday just getting crushed. First by a crashing TIE fighter, then like forced chokehold from Darth Vader. And I'm like, your poor sister. And she's just standing there in the street looking <laughs> forlorn and sad and sweet. And, but he had, but listen, here's my point. He had to show every single one to me. I had to sit there and go through every single one. And what he wanted from me in that moment, I would say what he needed from me was very simple. Put away your phone, set down your bag, set aside all the stress and stuff from a day at the office. Eye contact, just notice me. Pay attention, see me, see my force chokehold on your daughter. Um, <laughs> see that. And then all, all he needed from me was just a smile on my face. Great job, Moto. That's absolutely beautiful. He, did, he was not asking for money. Okay, so now give me 20 bucks, you know? Um, that's more like teenage behavior. But he, he, <laughs> he was not asking for, okay, now take me out to Sultan's Draw or whatever. He, he, all he wanted in that moment was me to look at him, smile at him, and say, that is so great. I'm so proud of you. 
You're like the next Christopher Nolan, practically, you know? He doesn't know who that is, but he's like, thanks, Dad. <laughs> and off he goes. And when children don't get this, in particular from a father, and we need it from more than a father, but I know that's unpopular to say, but now we have like hard science to back that statement up. When children don't get this from parents and other people in community, but especially from a father, they grow up and end up looking for it in all sorts of other places. I cannot tell you, um, I know just enough well-known people and travel just enough and see behind the scenes just enough to realize that there are a whole lot of well-known leaders inside the church, pastoral things, outside the church, CEOs or whatever, who from a surface level brag and self-promote and retweet positive statements about their latest book or sermon or whatever online or dominate people and hire and fire and leave a trail of dead bodies in their wake. I can tell you almost always when you actually look behind the scenes, they are living from a deep father wound. They never got the attention and approval of their dad. So here they are, 20, 30, 40, 50 years old, some of them world famous, or at least trying so hard to get it from other people, to get it from the internet, to get it from a this, to get it from a whatever, and it rarely ends well. Our healthy desire to be noticed and rewarded by our Father, just with his relationship, his smile, his pleasure over our life, out of that just that quickly becomes, especially if we grow up in a family of origin that is less than healthy, which is a lot of us, it quickly becomes a desire to be noticed and look good in front of other people. And that is just a hamster wheel. It's just like you, you're always, you run, you tweet, you work, you brag, you boast, you show off, you accomplish, you accumulate, and you never, ever get there. Is there freedom from that? The answer is yes. Now, whenever you read the Bible or the teachings of Jesus, you know, you have, and we talk about this a lot at Bridgetown, you have to live with a foot in two worlds. You have one foot in Jesus' world, first century Israel, and then another foot in our world, 21st century Portland, Oregon. And you have to do the hard work of reading the Bible in both contexts, in Jesus' context and in our context. And when you oscillate back and forth between the two, you realize pretty fast that there are similarities and differences, right? So sometimes you're reading the Bible, you're like, oh, wow, that's really similar to our world. Other times you're reading the Bible, you're like, whoa, that's like nothing like our world at all. So what are the differences? Well, Jesus is speaking to a conservative religious culture with a high value for discipline where the spiritual disciplines in particular are just assumed and giving to the needy prayer and fasting were a part of the warp and woof of pretty much everybody's life and he did not even have to teach on it. Is that our culture? No. Do we live in a religious conservative culture? Now, one of the most progressive cities in America, if not in the world, do we live in a city with a high value for discipline? No, no, we live in like a cornucopia of hedonism, like walk four blocks in any direction and like you can just get lost in food and drink and pot and art and entertainment and sex and materialism and experience and the outdoors and those really ugly orange bicycles, like everything. <laughs> you can just get sucked in, all of it in excess. Do what feels good in the moment. Don't repress yourself. It's your identity. It's your individuality. 
And, and so we can't assume what Jesus assumes, that we all have discipline in our life and we're all practicing the spiritual disciplines and giving to the needy and prayer and fasting are just woven into all of, like we can't assume that um, because we're, what they in his world were often doing for the wrong reasons, we're often not doing at all. So we have to be really careful. There's like a whole other thing um, that Jesus was not saying to his context that I think you and I need to hear over the next few weeks. That said, what are the similarities? Well, here's just one for you tonight to end with. In Jesus' world, people really wanted to look good in front of others in order to kind of get a nice little pat on the back. Does that sound at all familiar to you? Just a few of us in the room kind of relate to that a little bit. Um, Let's just take social media as an example because it's low-hanging fruit and I was tired and uncreative this week, all right? So a selfie and I make fun of them, and then a couple times a year I do them. Um, A selfie, we all know this, is essentially a way to ask people to compliment you, right? So ignore what the caption says, some nonsense about riding in Keith Fishback's helicopter a few weeks ago. What it actually means is, I'm feeling a little down today and insecure. Would you just tell me you think I'm awesome? That's what that, some of you are not laughing because it's a hitting a little too close to home, (laughs) right? Some of you are like, Wait, you can, take some, you can take other pictures on Instagram too, not just a selfie. You know who you are, and I don't follow you, so I don't. Um, but that's, that's essentially what it is. Instagram, yeah, put that up. Instagram story is essentially a way to brag about doing something cool without using language. So, so this doesn't even say, it has a little emoji, like cool book. That's what it, what it actually means is, hey, I want you guys to think that I'm sophisticated and I, I didn't really actually come from old money. I grew up like lower middle class in a suburb in California, but I want you to think that like I grew up in, you know, like a New York, the Upper West Side, and I read Tolstoy on my day off just for fun. Never mind, this is actually like a collection of short stories and I just read one. But you don't know that. All you know is that John Mark in his free time reads like Russian novelists, like translations of Russian, not like, wow, like that's all, some of you are not laughing. That's because you don't read Tolstoy. That's what I'm saying right there. The number of followers or how many followers you have on whatever is essentially a way to measure your status in society. And that never ends well because either you end up with like, oh, wow, look at how cool I am. Or if you're my personality, most of us are just envy, jealousy, because there's always somebody cooler. There's always somebody with more. There's always somebody with this, that, or the other. But as we all know, social media is intentionally or unintentionally curating a lie. The image that we project to the world is not who we actually are, how we actually live. It is often who we want people to think we are or who we want to actually be. We're like, this is not me, but I really want to be this person. I follow myself on Instagram. Let me tell you, my life on there is freaking awesome. If my life was even half that good, I would just like seriously be Joel Olstein, and it would be amazing. (laughs) Because all I do is post like I curate I celebrate the good, the beautiful, and the true, also known as I only post cool things. I don't post like in a fight with my wife again over this same stupid thing. Don't post that. Don't post like feeling really tired today, had a lot of meetings as a pastor and I'm introverted and so I just wanna like yell at my children who are driving me, don't post that. 
Don't post like Monday morning, just feeling really tender and emotional. And, and honestly, I'm really depressed because I gave a teaching on nonviolence and it made some people really mad. And I got in this little fight about how to interpret Romans 13. And I'm dreading opening my email. Instead, it's like, here, doing an interview with Dr. Preston Sprinkle. Like, yeah. Like, <laughs> I was actually miserable that day. None of that is on there. Why? Because I want to look good. And I want, I want to look good in front of you and uh, the interweb. Now, social media, we laugh at it because it's low-hanging fruit that is in a lot of our life. But there are so many examples. Maybe you're not on social media at all. You're like, not me. I'm a doctor. <laughs> MD, actually. You can call me doctor. Like, that's just a whole other one. Degrees, your resume. And I'm all, I'm all for higher education. Please, like, hopefully you know I have a high value for that. Um, I actually have a master's degree, you should know that. Um, and I, I graduated summa cum laude and um, like, so like, but we all know degrees are a status symbol in our society. Or, or things, um, material, for a lot of people who aren't as, as wired for the life of the mind, it's, it's things, it's the car you drive, it's the clothes that you're wearing, it's the type of phone in your back pocket, it's how new your iPad is, do you get the new one every single year or whatever. Or, or some of you are like, no, not me, I'm a minimalist. But you still have like a whole shelf of books in your apartment and there's nothing else, like one chair, but the books are there to show all the visitors, you're a reader. <laughs> And you're smart, and I don't value things, I value the life of the mind. Yeah, whatever, you know, <laughs> even read that. Just be like, how do you know all of this? I know it from personal experience. <laughs> or think about the way that we brag to all of our friends, and there's like this one-upmanship. You ever there, like you're sitting around the table, and you know, you're after work with a few coworkers or whatever, and somebody tells a story, and then there's the like, oh yeah, I see your cool story about hiking in the gorge and almost dying, I raise you. Here's my cool story, and it's this like, do you know what I'm talking about? And it's like one person's great story is just drowned out because you have to one-up them. Of course, even tonight, we have the, like, the MTV Music Awards tonight. That is like the pinnacle, like an awards ceremony. Famous people rewarding other famous people and all of us just eating it up. Like we have to, to it's nauseating. My point is, listen, I'm just about done. Our culture is obsessed. I think more now than ever before, my working theory is because of the breakdown of the family and the disappearance and dismantling of fatherhood, it's obsessed with image, with looking good over being good, with applause and accolades from people rather than attention and approval from the father. And it is exhausting, am I right? Always trying to keep up, stay cool, stay informed, well-read, up-to-date, in vogue, we end up living with our emotional state rising or falling based on what other people are or aren't saying about us. We end up living into a stereotype from our culture. You gotta dress a certain way, think a certain way, vote a certain way, act a certain way, rather than into our identity and calling from God. We end up living under the tyranny of the approval or disapproval of other people, which is suffocating. Living from fear rather than faith. It is written in the scriptures, that the fear of man is a snare. Those who live by the fear of man will die by the fear of man. And we create our own little hell on earth, one selfie, one comment, one boast, one brag, one story, one degree, one thing at a time. All that to say, this teaching of Jesus could not come at a better cultural moment. How do we break free? And I know for some of you, this isn't a thing. You just, you're there, you're free, great. But a lot of you are not. 
You're suffocating under it. You feel like, like literally imprisoned to what other people think of you. How do we break free from the tyranny of living to look good rather than simply for the reward of the Father? Well, what I love about Jesus is he always has just some small, easy, creative step to take, a little practice. So for him and this teaching in front of you, it's very simple. If that's where you're at and you want freedom, here's what you do. And this is all invitation. You don't have to do this. If you want free, then just in the week ahead, tomorrow morning, sometime in the next few days, next few weeks, just go do something Jesus-y. That's really ambiguous. Just something. Go do a good work. Give something to the needy. Volunteer somewhere. Take a little kid who is in need of a mentor out for an ice cream. Just something. And here's the thing. Do it in secret. Like, don't post it on Instagram story. Don't go around like with your Bridgetown community at Tuesday night and just share a praise report about what God is doing through your life. This experience I had with a four-year-old kid, you know, in need of a mentor. And it was just amazing to be that mentor for him and just to feel like I was Jesus to this kid. And it was like, now just, mm, mm mm-mm. And don't do this because I'm saying to do it. That defeats the purpose. Don't do it, well, okay, it's the right, that defeats, this is invitation. And, and, and maybe you need to do something and, and it's fitting to tell people about it. Great. I'm just saying if you want freedom, go do something cool. Keep it a secret. Don't, don't stress out about that. Just don't tell anybody about it. And when you do it, pause for a moment and imagine the Father. Imagine his face. Like actually think of his face over you. And imagine a smile there. You're not earning his love any more than Moses is earning my love by force choking Sunday. Like, he, he already has my love. Um, he already has it. We're in relationship. You already have the Father's love. You're in relationship. But just imagine his smile over your life and let that smile be enough and just feel the suffocating weight of bondage and imprisonment to what other people think. Just feel it fall off of your shoulders as you get to experience freedom in the kingdom of God. Let's stand and pray. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of Practicing the Way, a simple, beautiful way to integrate formation into your church or group. All our resources are completely free, thanks to the generosity of The Circle, a community of monthly givers who partner with us to see spiritual formation integrated into the church at large. Special thanks for this episode goes to Andrew from Salt Lake City, Utah, Andrew from Portland, Oregon, Jody from Kiefer, Oklahoma, Kuhn from Groningen, Netherlands, and Dan from Norcross, Georgia. Thank you all so much. To join the circle or learn more about running a practice in your church or community, visit practicingtheway.org.